Hello and welcome back to Lift the Sink, episode 5. I'm Paddy Dotterty, and today's episode is going to feature a short story from Niall McCardle called A Whisper of the Blizzard in the Hills Far Off, as well as an interview with uh, my fellow writer and friend Ashling Kyo. But before we get into uh, the story and the interview, I'd just like to make a couple of brief announcements regarding the podcast. Uh, this episode is going to be the last episode for a while, so I'm not going to be looking for any new submissions for the time being. Uh, I've just got a few other commitments that I need to see to, and it's just difficult to find the time that I want to dedicate to the podcast. But I'm by no means going away for good. I'd like to bring it back sometime in autumn when things settle down here in Spain. Okay, to kick off the episode then, we're going to go straight for the story by Niall McCardle, A Whisper of the Blizzard in the Hills Far Off. And to tell you a little bit about Niall, he's, his work has appeared in the Irish Times, Banshee, Spontaneity, The Lonely Crowd, The RTE Guide, AGNI Online and Phoenix Irish Short Stories, and has been broadcast on RTE Radio. He was the winner of the RTE Guide Penguin Ireland Short Story Competition and has been shortlisted for the Hennessy Literary Awards and the Francis McManus Short Story Competition. And this story, A Whisper of the Blizzard in the Hills Far Off, will be published in The Music of What Happens, an anthology of new Irish writing due in August from New Island Books. Without further ado then, here is Niall himself reading the story. A Whisper of the Blizzard in the Hills Far Off Are you mad? Out in this? You shouldn't be on the road at all. You're crawling along. You can barely see a thing. Just a blurry grey and white howling around you as you shuffle around bends and turns and stamp on the clutch and wrestle with the gears, hoping the car won't stall. You have the heat blasting. You turn up the radio to drown out the fan. The car is hobbling up a mountain against the wind in the sleet and a song is screaming at you about, of all things, the summer. Beside you, Kira smiles. She's ten. She smiles a lot. You never know why. Her smile is a copy of her granddad's nasty smirk, lips rippling like she's always enjoying a private joke. Nobody can remember snow like this. The country's come to a halt. No buses, No trains, no bread. For some reason, everyone thinks this is hilarious. You think Jenny won't be laughing. Grew up in the back of beyond in Canada. Knows how treacherous it is to get behind the wheel in weather like this. Spilled off the highway in the middle of nowhere once. Twenty below. Stuck in a ditch three hours before a car came along. Could have been three days. She knows real winter. Knows properly cut off. Can't even get a snow shovel in this ridiculous country. You know you won't get to the house in time. When you walk in, everyone will turn and look at you with salty eyes. They will leave you alone with your father only after you yell at them to get out. The snow is heaving down now and thrumming against the windscreen. You switch the wipers to fast and listen to their steady, soothing wump-wump. You know you'll be too late because you had a dream last night of today's phone call and this blizzard, and this drive up the mountain, and in the dream you arrive twenty minutes after he dies. You will drive on and up the mountain, and when you reach a peak, it will only be the half-peak, miles of snow and drift and ice to crawl through, and this moment was also in the dream, 
and you will curse and slam the dashboard and then you will try to remember if you cursed and slammed the dashboard in the dream. The snow will be falling at the cemetery when they lower him to the ground, too. It'll be soft and gentle, though, as though the universe was offering a kindly tribute to the dear departed. The idea has you barking a guffaw, a sudden, bursting ha, that somehow times itself with that exact same note of the song coming from the radio. The synchronicity of it sets you off again, and you almost lose control of the wheel in a splutter of hacking, horking laughter. You, at Kira's age, lying on the floor, under the desk while he worked, you with your crayons and cartoon monsters, him with his files, the tappity-tap-tap of his fingers on the desk, bluish pipe smoke snaking up to the ceiling, legs crossed, one foot jittering to the jazz on the stereo. The coal and oil stink of his shoe polish hits you. You roll down, then up, the window to let in a quick blast of air. You change the station to catch the end of a weather bulletin. You wonder what Egypt in Met Aaron came up with the colour-coding system for the weather alerts. Yellow snow? Talk about taking the piss. That one time you spilt ink on his files. His eyes ballooned. There was a swift hush in the room and an odd quake in the air. You will feel that air again when you stand over his corpse. You will look at him, papery hands crossed on his chest, white hair brushed back. You will bow your head and mumble something. And if anyone sees you doing that, they'll make the mistake of thinking that you're praying. You hit a patch of ice and spin and end up in a ditch. This wasn't in the dream. The wheels are spinning. In the rearview mirror, there's a filthy fountain of slush. You reverse slowly, going down further so the tyres can get enough grip, and then you floor it so you can clamber back onto the road. There's a shudder and a horrific grinding sound. From beside you, you can feel a rippling smirk. You used to sit where she is now, because you're crawling up the hill to your father's deathbed in his car. A clunker so old, there's nothing automatic about any of it. The clock looks like a clock, and there's an ashtray under the radio. He taught you how to drive in it on this very road. Hands at ten and two, Eamon. Check your mirrors. The gear stick thunked when you put it into third and the car lurched. Don't grind the gears, son. This is a delicate machine. You'll never please a woman if you manhandle her like that. I'm trying, da. You certainly are. His little hiccupy chuckle and that waggle of his eyebrows when your mother used to mix up Bach and Beethoven or when she pronounced Yeats to rhyme with Keats. Sly, snide remarks about how her spectacular beauty almost made up for the lack of anything going on upstairs. But all in good fun, pet. Come on, love, take a joke. The sleet is bulleting the car. The wipers are wump-wumping like crazy, but you're afraid the gale could still whip them right off. You know that soon you will have to deal with the detritus of his life, how every tiny ridiculous thing will matter, every piece of paper he ever signed, every tie he ever wore, every pair of shoes he ever polished. You will pack his stuff into boxes, things to keep, things to throw away, things for the charity shop. You've done this once already. You and Jenny did it with Kira's things, her dolls, her toys, her clothes, crammed her life into a few boxes. You see Kira quite a bit these days. Always do around her anniversary. 
coming up on eight years now. Those long nights in the hospital, her stubbly head and her eyes as big as saucers, tubes in her stick arms and up her nose. She stayed cheery while you and Jenny were falling to pieces and you thought, why is she so fucking happy? Surely she knows her time is up. She must know. Our child's not stupid. Those eyes are looking at you now. The head is no longer a cue ball. She has her usual throng of curls. You wish that she would speak when she visits you. You have so many questions. You want to ask her about where she's come from, to tell you something you're sure you couldn't come up with yourself. You need to believe that you haven't found her from a corner of your own mind. Because, because, well, because you don't want to end up like him. Dotty is the word everyone in the family agreed on years ago, when he started leaving the keys in the fridge and getting turned around on the drive home. Dad's a bit dotty. Looks at you bewildered when you visit. Sometimes thinks his wife is his mammy. Asks where his granddaughter is. Sure, it's been ages since you and Jenny brought her to see us. Your mother cries and sighs a lot, of course. But you've noticed how she's also a lot chirpier these days. That time you saw her rolling her eyes behind his back when he came downstairs in his togs and said he was going for a swim in the Pacific. You wonder, has Kira visited Jenny as well? Does she choose to speak to her mother, but not to you? After the child died, there was a gap between you and Jenny. She spent days in bed, curtains closed, not eating, thundering at you because you seemed to be coping so well, Useless prick, you weren't even there when Kira finally slipped away. You couldn't get to the hospital in time because you were shunting along the road during the big freeze. Now it's happening again. You hauling your battered car through a whiteout to get to a deathbed only to arrive there too late. You tap your wedding ring on the wheel. After the divorce you took it off but soon missed the heft of it. You look at your daughter You want to know what she's thinking, but your heart buckles at the possibility that she hates watching over you, keeping you company, comforting you in a car clunking up a hill. Will the old man show up soon as well? Is it only a matter of time until you see him tappity-tap-tapping in a corner or sitting beside you in the car, urging you to slow down and moaning about the music on the radio? Will you see him in the supermarket aisle, or on the dart, or will he be a guard directing traffic, or the bus driver, or the man behind the counter at the newsagents? You think you'll be able to bear it, finding him everywhere, because you know it will kill him to discover how mundane the afterlife is. He'll never shut up about it. This is dreadful, Eamon. There's something else, though. Something you don't know yet. And you won't have a dream of it first to prepare you. How soon you will discover that you miss him. Miss his little chuckle and his waggling eyebrows and his shoe polish and how the missing of him will undo you and how you will again be in this car pulled over at the side of the road, a heap of snot and tears, thumping the steering wheel. The hills behind you finally, a thin line of smoke rising up ahead and the snow still falling Your wipers are wump-wumping and the radio is blaring and the storm eases right up and you can see the lights of the house. You brake and crunch to a stop and turn off the engine. The silence from the radio is a shocking slap. You look at the upstairs window and you know they're huddled around the bed 
tending to his body, your mother gently combing his hair. Kira is gone. You squint and tell yourself you can see her tiny footprints trailing up the lane to the house. The snow has stopped. The wind has vanished. There is a gaunt quiet around you. And all you want to do is sit in this car at the top of this mountain and listen for a whisper of the blizzard in the hills far off. Okay, so that was a whisper of the blizzard in the hills far off. And I think you'll agree it's a really elegantly written, heartfelt story. And I was really absolutely thrilled to have been able to showcase it on the podcast. I'd also like to thank uh, Robert Doran, uh, who was this month's, uh, this episode's judge, for uh, reading through the submissions and selecting this story for me. Next up, we're going to go to our interview with the writer Ashling Kyo. Now, I'd like to preface this uh, segment of the show with a few apologies. First to Ashling, because I had a few technical issues when I was rec- when we were recording it on Skype, and also I'm not the most technical person in the world. So that made it a little bit, uh, it made it a little bit difficult for us to have the conversation. Then later, I'm also not really a very skilled interviewer and I've had to edit out large chunks of my own rambling. But I think that everything that Ashling says is clear and concise and I hope you uh, enjoy listening to it. So here is uh, my interview with Ashling Kyo. Okay, so I'm delighted to be joined here on Skype by uh, Ashling Kyo, my friend and fellow writer. So Ashling, how are things? How are you keeping? Oh, not too bad at all, Paddy. Thank you. Nice to be talking to you this evening. Good stuff, good stuff. So for uh, just for any of the listeners who might not uh, be familiar with your work, can you, just, can you just tell us a little bit about yourself first? Okay. Um, I suppose I live in Galway in the West, and I've been writing now for nine or ten years. Um, I started writing um, when Writing for All was still a thing, which is how you and I know each other, and um, kind of went from there. So over the nine or ten years that I've been writing, I've had a number of short stories and flash fictions published in various Irish literary magazines and in a couple of anthologies abroad, and I finished writing my first novel last year, and I'm just about starting work on a second one now. Okay, great stuff. Well, actually, you kind of touched on one of what was one of my uh, first questions. Uh, I wanted to know what kind of what prompted you to start writing, let's say seriously, or to want to start writing. I think at the time I started writing around 2011, it was because of a difficult experience that I kind of wanted to process. I just started writing about it found writing for all, all got brave and put it up there. But I know that growing up in my teens, I used to write a lot, just journals, short stories, bits and pieces. And I always had this urge to write, but I think I kind of thought it wasn't a real job and I should get myself one of those. So that's, I don't know when I started to write or why, but it was always there. It was always reading and writing. They were my things. Music as well. Uh, and that brings me to something else I wanted to ask you. What do you think was the... Well, who were the first maybe writers or whatever, it could be maybe music, who who uh, really hit you hard or really made an impression on you growing up? Writers and music. 
I'm trying to think. I know when I was kind of in my teens, I would have read a lot of biographies for some reason. My my dad is a, an amazing reader, and I suppose that's probably where I got it from. But a lot of what he was reading would have been nonfiction. And I think that's so I can remember reading biographies and kind of historical fiction growing up. Um, I did back when NUIG was still UCG, I did an English degree. And my favorite course in all of that was at some stage I did a, a kind of an elective on literature of the American South, which I truly loved. And that opened me up to Alice Walker and Jean Toomer. Cash Yeah, William Faulkner. <laughs> Um, some of the greats like that so um, music like you said Manic Street Preachers and Smashing Pumpkins for some reason really spoke to me years ago and the, you're also uh, quite involved in the writing community uh, of Ireland and international, internationally as well and you mentioned the writing for all platform that existed uh, about whatever 10 years ago yeah. But I wanted to know what impact being part of a kind of a community of writers or, you know, meeting up with other writers, uh, doing the, the workshops or uh, different sort of social events with writers. Uh, how has that affected your writing or has it helped? Or... I'm going to sound like a paid advert for something now, but I'll go ahead anyway. Um, I suppose when I started writing, I had three children the third was just born and the oldest was five so they were five three and an infant so for years I didn't get to anything and then I started out small just kind of doing some locally based stuff but in 2018 July of 2018 I saw a thing on Twitter by Sarah Moore Fitzgerald and she was advertising she was basically running the inaugural um University of Limerick Creative Writing Winter School and it was just advertised as time to write and I was kind of trying to get the first novel finished and I was like you know what I'm just gonna go for it so I did and I suppose I did it in 2018 and I went back as a mentor in 2019 but in terms of being part of a community that's kind of where I found my tribe that's where I would say I lost the imposter syndrome and kind of went, yes, I can write. And if these people believe I can write, then I need to believe in myself a bit more. So I think that's kind of what being part of a, like I I met you from Writing for All and Mary Maxwell and Eamon O'Cleary and a few others. And they were kind of my go-to people for what I was working on then. But now I feel there's this massive swell of support with that group. It's been amazing. Uh, okay, the other thing I wanted to move on to is uh, you mentioned at the beginning your uh, novel, Joseph Eating Ice Cream. Yeah. Uh, I'm one of the privileged people who's read it. It's on submission at the moment, isn't it? Um, I'm submitting to agents at the moment, yeah. I think it was fantastic. I, I can remember very specifically when I read it. I think it was sometime, well, it was a couple of months ago, maybe sometime in 2019, I got, I had printed it out. And I was getting an airport bus to Madrid from Seville, which is six hours. And yeah. I took it and I read it in the in its entirety on the bus. And I got off. I was buzzing. I was like, this is a great book. And I, I, uh, I really thought, well, she's done it here. And I was delighted for you because I was, as you say, it's writing over the short story distance is a bit easier just by the it takes less out of you. But when when you see someone can carry it over the full length of a novel, it's that's a really uh, 
really tells you that the person has upped their game. Uh, so anyway, I'm, I'm well, talking, a bit too, talking a bit too much here again. But I wanted to know, where, where exactly did you get the idea for Joseph eating ice cream? I know it's a bit of a cliche question, but where, where did it start with? What did it start with? It started with a short story prompt, a, a prompt from a writing group I was part of at the time. We were sitting in a hotel in Galway where we used to have our writing group meetings and they were playing some kind of 80s schlock over the sound system and we were thrown back to the kind of slow set school disco of our childhood and we had a big conversation about that before kind of over coffee before we got into discussing the work and at the end we usually set ourselves a prompt or something to come up with for the next time so the prompt was the slow set so I was kind of holding this and not thinking about it too much, but holding it in the back of my head. And there was one very, very hot day. The book opens the scene in a forecourt where the character Maria and Joseph are kind of regarding each other across the forecourt. And I remember being at a local petrol station and watching two teenagers kind of have this ritual. And the idea that I had to write something for the prompt came to mind. And I went, oh, I might start using this. So. I didn't want it to be kind of a straight up teenage kind of romance thing. So I needed an angle. So the angle was what if the tension wasn't between a 17 year old guy, guy and a 17 year old girl? What if the angle was between a 17 year old guy and his 30 odd year old teacher? So that's where it started from. So I took those two characters and the first thing I wrote was a short story called Joseph Eating Ice Cream. And it was, there's a scene in the, of a slow set in the disco. So that was the first piece of it I wrote. And then the novel kind of mushroomed out from that. Yeah. And would you, was it a easy, an easy novel to write once you started? Um, initially, it was difficult. I think what happened was the novel has two narrators. It has Joseph and Maria. And then it has a couple of friends and other characters as well. And they each narrate different chapters. I think um, what was difficult at the start was, you know, the first story was written in his voice, then Maria's voice came in, and then it was him and Maria. And it was like a dialogue going back and forth, but each piece of the dialogue was a chapter. So I never set out to write a book or a novel. And I think I was about 20,000 words in when I kind of went, okay, this needs to be a book. So I really came at it backwards and how I managed to kind of turn it round and construct it into something. I'm not sure, but I think it was with a lot of help from my friends. Yeah. One thing I, I always, maybe not just in your novel, but in some of your other writing as well, is the kind of notion of people struggling with what's appropriate or what's expected of them uh, in life, uh, that they go through the, let's say they jump through the hoops, they do the things that everybody does, and ultimately they get to a point where they they really haven't consulted their feelings at at any time uh, on this journey. Uh, would that be something that you'd you'd think about in in your writing? Sorry, I'm just kind of running over the question over my head, just about the idea that people are, I suppose, in some way bound to a particular course of action, and that there has to be a certain moment of reflection before they move on to something. Uh, no, not exactly. I mean that people people go through the various stages of life 
and sometimes they're going through them for the sake of it because they think they should be doing this thing yeah. at this time so let's say you finish school well you go to college now you go to college you you meet someone you meet you get your boyfriend girlfriend uh, you spend five years with them you now you get married to them now you now you have children it's like that people are kind of going through the stages as they think they should be as everyone else is but sometimes they something breaks down later on where they're looking back or they're realizing that they ne- they never really followed their their true feelings uh, in these yeah. in these choices it's it's people making not really thinking about their choices until later yeah i suppose those things that you spoke about they they do interest me but i suppose they interest me in as far as people interest me and maybe i was never conscious of writing that way before but I do think that a lot of my writing is influenced by what I do for my day job, which is counselling and psychotherapy. So I think I'm very aware of, I suppose, how much people live their lives with shoulds and other people's expectations. Does that make sense, sir? Yeah, no, definitely, yeah. That's yeah a... so maybe it's just it's, a, it's something I see a lot of and it presents as a, as a kind of recurring or under recurring theme or undercurrent I don't know yeah it certainly it, it definitely it's especially the Maria character in Joseph eating ice cream she's a great character because I think she's so true of of uh, a, a lot of people like that find themselves in situations where they, they haven't really thought about it as much or they, they wonder why why are they here why are they in this relationship why are they in this job or whatever yeah. and uh the relationship with with Maria and uh, the younger uh, the younger teenage boy. What's what's I can't remember that character's name. Joseph. Joseph. Jesus Christ. That's in the title. <laughs> uh, it's like saying, "What's the name of the girl in Sophie's Choice?" Uh, but uh, yeah, it, that she. But she, her kind of um, she take, it takes a lot of guts for her to to really come out of her unhappiness in a way. Which, I suppose it does. Sorry, go on. No, no, go on. Sorry, I was. Yeah, go on. You talk. I was just going to say that the funny. I suppose for me, the funny thing is that while there's a bit of me that really likes her and admires her for making that step, there's another bit of me that doesn't like her either, which makes her a very interesting character, I suppose. To me. Yeah. Exactly. Yeah. No. 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 It is. It's. It's great. It's a great way of. Uh, I guess. You like complicating it in an interesting way because you could just have gone for an affair I suppose and uh, what I loved about this is that this book was that you on the surface you wouldn't really approve of uh, I, I think I gather she's in her she's in her 30s early 30s yeah and she's fallen over a guy who's 16 isn't it and well, I'm not giving I'm not giving away too much there am I no it's you're just not the be- it's the beginning of the book but the brilliant thing I thought is that like you I found myself just rooting for the relationship which I probably on the surface wouldn't have approved of if I just heard about it I'd say oh yeah. god it's a bit inappropriate whatever but because of the psychology the I think the depth of the characters you see way beyond what the, the superficial interpretation of that would be thank you because that's I suppose what I was hoping for the book that um I suppose sometimes people just feel how they feel but we do tend to judge yeah, exactly. Yeah. I suppose that was one of the things that I wanted people to be aware of. Maybe that that 
the fact that you have to question your judgment is something that might last after the book's been closed and put on the shelf. If it ever becomes a book, of course, but you know what I mean. Yeah, well, oh God, hope, hopefully it does now. It, it like really deserves to be. As I said, uh, I read it in one sitting and uh, I flew through it and I loved it. Uh, so I, I think this is a book that would be very popular and it, it should do very well. So I, I would be baffled if it wasn't published. Thank you. I do remember you emailing when you finished that journey and saying I really enjoyed that and me doing a little dance around the kitchen because you were one of my first readers. Yeah, oh, well, it was, it was as I said, it was brilliant. It made the trip to um, Madrid a lot easier. Anyway, Ashling, uh, I think we'll wrap it up there. Uh, thanks a million for joining me. I really appreciate it. Not at all, love. Talk to you. Thanks for having me along. Not at all, not at all. Thank you. Okay, thank you, Ashling, then, for talking to me and for having the patience to listen to some of my very long-winded questions. Okay, so I think that's it for today. We're going to wrap it up. There's no review on this episode, but I will just give a quick shout-out to some of the writers I've been reading recently. Uh, the, big, uh, the first one would be Lisa McInerney, The Glorious Heresies. Now, I was absolutely blown away by this book. It's just fizzing. Every page is fizzing with very either poetic prose or really gritty vernacular dialogue, etc. It just it was a, really, a book that really kind of screamed its way through my head. And in addition to that, I also have read uh, E.M. Reapy's Red Dirt. And I was also very impressed by this. It uh, tells the story of young people of my generation, particularly, who went to Australia and some of the troubles they encountered there, the difficulties. And I think as a historical record, if a novel can be a historical record, this book is hugely important because it writes a chapter of history that you know, might not get written otherwise, what these people went through, what they had to flee from, the kind of this generation's experience of an old Irish trope that is uh, emigration. So yes, Lisa McInerney, The Glorious Heresies, and E.M. Reapy, Red Dirt, both highly recommend them. Great, great novels. Okay, so I'm going to finish up by thanking everybody who's listened to the podcast, everybody who's submitted to it, our featured writers, Monica Wang, Fergal O'Neill, Anne MacDonald and Niall McArdle, and everybody who's contributed to the judging, such as Ashton Kyo herself, uh, David Brennan, and Robert Doran. Thank you all, guys. That's it for the time being, and I'm hoping to be in touch with you all again soon with more episodes come autumn. All right, good luck. Bye.